joined now by Rachel Dory from Staff and Graph Podcast. Uh, was your, now, do you have a long weekend where you are? Did you get Monday off? I had Monday off in terms of it being a holiday. I did work, though. We recorded the podcast, and uh, I do, because I have some overseas work, it wasn't a holiday over there, so I, I still had to uh I had to work, but I was thankful I got to have lunch with my family, and so can't complain. Oh, there you go. So there was, it was kind of a, a, a morphed holiday, and you'll take it, right? Exactly. I mean, if we're being honest, like, you take holidays when you can get them, and yeah. sometimes you can't always get them, so you just have to take a, an hour here or there. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Okay, over the years... Oilers coaches often put McDavid and Drysaddle together on a line for road trips. Uh, Chris Knobloch just did it. And I'm always, uh, like, I understand that they do, their scoring numbers are about equal, but they do outscore in terms of uh, how often they score when they're together. But what's the logic in doing this? And does it run counter to what would be considered ideal deployment? Yeah, you know what? Um, That's a very interesting question because generally speaking, when you have two players of that caliber, we're talking two of the very best in the league, you almost split them on the road because you don't control the matchup. And and so what that would do is if you're on the road, the home coach gets the matchup and they would usually get to pick. And so if you're putting them on the same line, that kind of makes their life easier in the sense that like they just throw out their best D pairing against McDavid and Dreisaitl. They kill two birds with one stone. Whereas if you're separating, you got to pick. You want your Norris Trophy caliber defenseman potentially going against McDavid, or do you want him going against Dreisaitl? And so I don't know. What I have noticed, though, is when I go back and look, they seem to do it when maybe they're – Yes, they're performing, but not to the highest degree, and maybe they need a little bit of a boost. Um, That really is the only logic I can see, unless you feel like you load up that line and they're going to score no matter what, because if you load them up, I mean, that's that's the best line in the league no matter what, who you put on the other side, which would usually be Hyman. But I think when you – when you look at it, you ideally, you'd want to separate them and putting them together kind of says uh, we're loading up and we want offense basically from one line. Yeah, it's everybody feels they should be split up and then everybody watches, every coach puts them together. So there must be something in there. Uh, based on the insiders, I'll say it's Elliot Friedman. It looks like the Calgary Flames are looking for a first round pick for Chris Tanev. Your question is, should the Oilers pay that price? I don't think anyone should pay that price, Alan. I think that's crazy. Um, I look at it and um, with who Chris Tanev is comparable to, we're looking at a guy like Ryan Suter, Radko Gudis, um, and those are guys that are excellent defensively and also where offense goes to die. And so, yes, you need good penalty killers, but Tanev hasn't been particularly great in terms of his individual numbers on the penalty kill this year. I think that could change, and Calgary does have the fourth best penalty kill in the league. It's just that he gives up a ton of chances. And so I'm not necessarily sure that he's worth that first-round pick. I think a second-round pick is probably appropriate value. But if you're Edmonton, probably Toronto, and Vancouver, 
uh, if I'm Calgary, I, I would say, hey, you, you need this guy, and I'm not taking anything less than a first-round pick. But I, I do think that a first-round pick would be an overpayment for a guy like Chris Tanev. If you're going to expend a first-round pick, I think the guy you need to be going after is Noah Hannafin. Well, there you go. Rachel Dory, Staff and Grab Podcast. Um, next question, again about the autos and again about defense. How difficult – we've talked about this, but I want to hear it again because I like – I like the way you think. How difficult will it be to off- offload Cody Cece? And is it possible that Brett Kulak would have more value than Cece, or he definitely is less valuable? That's a tough one, right? I think when you look at the situation that the Oilers are in, everybody knows they have to unload salary. And Cody Cece makes $500,000 more than Brett Kulak. And Brett Kulak is more versatile, but... Cody Cece's right-handed. And whether we like it or not, there is an attributed tax for right-handed defensemen, specifically those that anyone believes can play in the top four. I actually think Cody Cece's been pretty good this year. And at 3-2-5, I don't think that his contract is so out of line that you should be paying to get rid of it. I think he's been appropriate value this year. Maybe not. Maybe he's 2.9, but he's certainly not one of those defensemen where they're being paid like $4 million and playing like a $750,000 defenseman. And so to answer your question, I do think Cody Cece would have more value than Brett Kulak. And it's because around the hockey world, a right-handed defenseman who's proven he can play in the league has value and teams are always going to want that. You see it all the time. I mean, we just talked about Chris Tanev and, paying a first-round pick for him would be an overpayment. And so there's no reason to think that first-round, or maybe not a first-round pick, but there's no reason to think that a team wouldn't pay for a guy like Cody Cece, probably more than they should. I think he's fine, and if Edmonton can find another top-four defenseman and put Cody Cece down on the third pair, I actually think he'd be a fantastic third-pairing defenseman for them. So I don't know that they want to move off of him. I think he could probably move off of Brett Kulak because – there's going to be teams that need depth defensemen. Tampa comes to mind. Dallas comes to mind. And Brett Kulak's kind of a guy where if you're willing to move off of him and maybe attach something to him uh, to get rid of that salary, a contender will use him as a seventh kind of defenseman. Rachel, uh, uh, fans who are not Maple Leafs fans were promised struggle when Morgan Riley got suspended, and it's been upheld by Gary Bettman. And the Maple Leafs just keep on winning. Uh, Are they just outscoring everything, or have they found some answers defensively? Oh, man. Um, First of all, I think Bettman made the right call here. I think that should have been a five-game suspension in a vacuum. But like all cross-check to the head to be five-game suspensions. I feel like we could make that an automatic suspension and probably be fine. Um, but, yeah, you know what? It's interesting, right? They're, I, I guess it's 3-0 now uh, without Morgan Riley. And what I find with Toronto teams, specifically in the new era, so the Matthews, Marner, Tavares sort of era, is whenever a star, particularly on the back end, goes out, whenever they lose someone, it seems to be more of a by committee as opposed to, ah, Morgan Riley will do it. Or, ah, Jake Muzzin will be physical. Well, when Jake Muzzin goes down, everyone's got to be physical because you lose that out of the lineup. When Morgan Riley goes down, everyone knows they've kind of got to come together because that is a major hole in the lineup. So it almost feels like everyone picks up the slack a little bit. The goaltending has been good. And then, I mean, 
the reality is Austin Matthews has been nothing short of absolutely extraordinary. He, for whatever reason, seems to be the guy, whether it's a game time goal or a game winning goal, he is the guy that is all getting them back at game or some lead into game. And then everyone just kind of jumps on board. And then that's exactly what you want out of a guy who's making the money that he is making. And so I think the answer is more by committee and everyone is kind of being greater than the sum of their parts, I guess. And then you have a guy who's just scoring at will right now, which is, you know, that's always a good thing to have. <laughs> if, if You know, and I'm throwing this at you, but if he gets to 70, that is absolutely, considering era, one of the all-time best scoring seasons, right? Because of the era and because 70 is such a monstrous number. If he gets to 70 goals, I don't know how he doesn't win the Hart Trophy because the thing in this game is goal scoring. And if you are averaging 0.9 goals a game, that is preposterous. And, I mean, you look at it, and yes, Kucherov and McKinnon and McDavid, at the end of the day, I genuinely believe the Leafs may not be a playoff team without the play of Austin Matthews this year, and that is a ridiculous thing to conceptualize given the amount of money that they pay to everybody else. But scoring 70 in an 82-game season, it hasn't happened since I've been born. And we're in a totally different era now. Like, guys are not – like, goalies are allowed to play the butterfly, and they're – much bigger and all of these other things and the score 70 would be um, that would be insane it really would uh, I want to ask you about Yarmer Yager he spent four seasons in his career playing in Europe he finished 128 goals behind Gretzky uh, I saw the celebration. I've always loved it. I, you know, I used to, even when he was playing in Florida, I would attend games just to watch the guy play. If he'd stayed in the NHL, would Yager have been the one to break the Gretzky record? I think we'd be definitely having a conversation about it because you talk about the three seasons he went over voluntarily and played in the KHL. What about the two seasons he lost to the lockout? Technically three, if we're talking about the half season. Yep. So you look, he, he loses 94-95 and he loses 04-05. Those are two seasons effectively in the prime of his career. I didn't have time to model it out, but just based on some base level linear regression that I was able to run. I would estimate he probably has an extra 115 goals. So we're having the conversation for sure. And then, I mean, if you're 10 goals away, you're pretty much staying in the league until you break the record at that point. I think the conversation would be excellent because you have, you would have had Yager in that discussion. And now you have Ovechkin. I think it would have led to a really cool discussion about kind of, how the game has changed, how it's improved to allow this kind of scoring to happen. Because if we're being very honest, if Austin Matthews stays healthy, there's no reason he can't break the record either. It's true. And that's kind of crazy to think about that Yager could have done it had he not lost five seasons. Ovechkin may or may not do it. And then we've got Matthews who's scoring at a higher pace than Ovechkin was at the same age. And then I think that kind of tells you how much better a place the game is in now. 
Uh, so we were talking about this, and it's a touchy issue because there's politics and everything involved, but it's also about personality. So do you think breaking the record, if Yager had done it, would have been a more compelling story and been covered more? Because I think that what we're approaching is maybe a muted uh, celebration of Ovechkin breaking the record for lots of reasons. But do you think Yager, because he was such a, a, a dynamic player and a dynamic personality, it would have been a bigger deal had he done it? I do think so. Um, I think, and honestly, rightfully so, that there is some consternation around Ovechkin for various reasons that probably don't need to be talked about on a sports radio show. <laughs> but with Yager, there's a different dynamic, right? We're talking about a guy that has a group of men who follow him around dressed in all of the jerseys that he's wearing with mullets. Sidney Crosby, he got Sidney Crosby to show personality by wearing a mullet on retirement <laughs> night. Like, he's legendary. And then the fact that he chirps his own girlfriend in the middle of his retirement ceremony. Like his, don't get me wrong, Ovechkin's personality is also fantastic. But I think the legend of Yager is just different. Like it's just a different beast. He is somebody that I would argue should have because he's going to play hockey until he basically can't anymore. I think the Hockey Hall of Fame needs to waive that period. He's yeah. very clearly not playing in the NHL anymore. He needs to go in the Hall of Fame, and we need to be done with it because his service to the game and what he's brought. If you think about how polarizing Yager is, I'm 28 years old. Yager was not in the prime of his career when I would have been able to tangibly remember all of the cool things that he did. But I could pretty much tell you that goal he scored for the Pittsburgh Penguins when he undressed every single player on the ice and <laughs> the Yager salute and all of that stuff. How many other players of his era can you say that about? He is a unicorn. Yeah, absolutely. He always was. Thank you, Rachel. Have a great week. You too, Alan. Okay, there you go. Rachel Dory, Staff and Graph Podcast.